Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, Radical Traditional Feminists. I'm one of the co-hosts, the Idea Dynamo, Samantha Pierce. My other co-hosts are Sarah Hammersma and Nikki Park. Sarah, Nikki, please introduce yourselves. Sarah, you go first. Thanks, Sam. Uh, I am so excited to be here. Uh, my name is Sarah. Uh, I'm a professor uh, outside the home, and I'm a parent of two kids, um, and I love the idea of getting together with people and reflecting on how we interact with the people around us and with our culture. Nikki? Hi, I'm Nikki. Um, I am a stay-at-home mom to three kids. Um, I have big ambitions to be an event planner, um, but with the way of the world right now, I'm very content being home and making sure everybody is safe and healthy. Um, and I am so thankful we have this technology to continue our fellowship in um, walking through biblical principles together. And I have been a stay-at-home mom, a work-outside-of-the-home mom, a work-from-home mom, and now I'm somewhere in between. I have five kiddos, two of them have disabilities. I have a disability, I'm autistic. I'm looking forward to this opportunity to think over and to talk over some of the, the aspects of things that impact our lives. So our first topic that we're going to discuss is how we came up with the name for this podcast, Radical Traditional Feminists. Um, Sarah and Nikki, take it away. Um, you know, I don't remember the exact story. I remember us drawing a Venn diagram and saying, this seems like us. <laughs> um, you know, in, in just our walking through the Bible together, finding that we have embraced all of these roles as uh, radicals in certain similar and different ways, being upholding some of these uh, biblical traditions, as well as we're all feminists. And um, what we're finding is we are at the same time, all three of these things, but also all three of these things in very different ways. Yes, I remember distinctly some um, conversation we were having uh, in which we were describing sort of our ambivalence about something and saying, I, I sort of, I think this about it, but I also think that, and that doesn't seem to like fit in a box uh, because it's sort of both traditionalist and feminist. And uh, Nikki said, those are my two isms, but that's what I am. <laughs> you know, it makes sense that you'd say that. And so we sort of uh, realized as we talked together that we all recognize that um, the set of values and uh, commitments that we hold just don't really align very well with um, most sort of established boxes that people might put themselves in. And so, um, and so in a, a sense, we wanted to um, take the fact that we recognize that we weren't alone and um, bring that to others who might feel the same way that they, they aren't fitting in a box. And uh, we're not an alternative box. Like Nikki said, each of us is pretty distinct in how we um, think of ourselves in these roles as a radical, a traditionalist, a feminist. Um, but what we have in common is that sense that um, we don't have to try to fit into uh, someone else's definition. And that is the part for me that is radical, that we're not willing to, to put ourselves into one box. We recognize that things are complex and that there are truths scattered around everywhere that we can agree with and stuff that we don't agree with. And 
being able to build the common ground on the truths that we recognize and being able to think carefully and discuss the things where we may or may not, where we don't agree and, and build even more common ground through that discussion. That I thought it was really, I thought it was fun <laughs> to call ourselves <laughs> radical traditional feminists because you don't often find people putting those three terms together. And our experience is that actually, yeah, the, those three go together and they overlap. And that's where we hang out. <laughs> Another topic that we're gonna talk about today is our experiences as stay-at-home moms, work from home moms, and work outside of the home moms. And Sarah, I think you have the most experience being a work outside of the home mom. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that was like? Sure. Um, when I was in college, I made the decision that I'd be going to graduate school um, to get a PhD in economics. And um, I started dating my husband at the time uh, that I was making those decisions. And so um, we sort of went into our marriage always knowing that this was, this was sort of a, a direction we were going to go, that I was, I was going to get this degree, um, planning to be a professor or a professional researcher of some kind. Um, and so really the conversations had to happen very early to, to make sure that we were on the same page uh, as far as child rearing and working outside the home. Uh, and so what we've, um, what we've found was uh, first, we were married for many years before we had kids. Uh, we struggled with infertility. And, uh, and so we spent a lot of years both working outside the home uh, in the ways that uh, couples without children frequently do. Uh, and then when we did adopt our first child, I really wondered if suddenly there would be a switch that flipped in my brain and I would say, I can't leave the home anymore. I need to be here all the time. Um, and I was worried about whether that would happen, but I was sort of also curious about it. I'm a researcher, so I'm curious about <laughs> things like that. Um, and so um, we adopted Meredith from Russia. She was one year old. Um, and fortunately I was able to take a, a bit of time away from work, um, but my husband also took time away from work and then um, Fairly early on, we um, sort of integrated some of our very good friends into our family unit in the sense that they also took substantial time um, just being with Meredith, getting to know her. Um, and it was really important for her, especially as an adoptee, to attach to us, her parents, um, to learn sort of which people we are and that we're the main ones. Um, but we were able to do that uh, primarily by um, switching off. So we did a lot of uh, turn-taking with childcare, um, and, uh, and some time uh, to some degree with grandparents, although they lived far away at the time. Uh, when we adopted Lucas a couple of years after that, uh, he was a newborn, and uh, one of my friends was actually willing to um, bring him in with her newborn uh, and do childcare for us in her home. Uh, and so that worked uh, for a bit, but it, it worked for us, but it didn't really work for Lucas. <laughs> So uh, Lucas is 10 now and we know a lot more about him and how he ticks and it all makes sense now. At the time we, we weren't sure what the deal was but what we concluded was he needs to be at his own home. He just isn't, he isn't thriving somewhere else. He won't eat, he won't nap, he won't do the things babies are supposed to do to stay healthy. Um, and so we ended up hiring an in-home um, childcare provider who became like family to us almost a little sister to me. Uh, she was 
24 at the time. And um, over the course of Lucas's uh, ages six months to two and a half, uh, she was part of our family from anywhere from uh, 15 to 30 hours a week, depending on uh, what might be going on, whether it was summer or schools in session and so on. Um, and that really was a huge blessing to us. And to me, a big reminder that um, that old truism, it takes a village to raise a child, um, really was something we had to embrace right away uh, and something that really worked well. And Nikki, what was your experience like as, as a stay-at-home mom? Well, I started, um, I was working when we first had kids. Um, we got married very young. Um, we also struggled with fertility and the doctor I had been seeing um, when my husband and I were engaged said, you should really consider getting married now if, it's, if it is important to you to be married when you have children. And so we dropped our big wedding plans and were married five weeks later and immediately started trying to um, have our babies. And so I was working that whole time, um, but my husband worked 2 p.m. to 10 p.m., sometimes 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. And I was working a typical, actually I worked about eight to three. Once we, after about a year and a half, um, we were, uh, got pregnant with my first child and we found our childcare situation was such that we only needed someone to take care of her for about two hours a day. So we were dealt with the possibility of either paying for uh, daycare, which even though we only needed two hours, every daycare place said we had to pay the regular same amount as someone who's there full time. Um, the other option was kind of, as Sarah said, relying on a village. And so a very, very dear friend of ours for about a, a year took Harper in that two hour time frame. Um, and then my parents actually stepped in and shortened it to even less. It was, it ended up being about 30 minutes to an hour that this friend had my daughter and my mom would come home from work and she would swing by and pick her up and take her. So it was a lot of traveling for um, my daughter and, you know, she did pretty well. Um, the bigger problem was that I did not have a passion for the job I was doing. I was um, an administrative assistant. The job was fine. It wasn't a bad job by any means. It just was not what I wanted to be doing, which is fine, except when the, the being taken, feeling taken from my children made it a job I didn't enjoy anymore. Mm -hmm. So when we found out we were pregnant with my second child, Henry, I said to my husband, I will eat peanut butter sandwiches every day. Can we figure this out? So I left my job and it was terrifying. Thankfully, my husband had all of the, um, our insurances through him, all the benefits were through him. So it wasn't a huge deal except for the financial part. And um, a, uh, another friend I had actually met through church offered me a virtual position um, doing some SEO and website development from home. Um, and it, I never made a lot of money with it, but it got us through kind of the initial fear of what we were going to do financially. So I was like, well, I have this, this maybe become, might become something. Mm. And it provided a little bit of a cushion, but not a lot. And I really think the opportunity was more a gift 
for my own anxiety from God, God saying, here's an opportunity. You can do this from home. And even though it didn't pan out, it softened the blow of like, what are we going to do? <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I've been home since then. Um, the plan was once my youngest, my third child started kindergarten, I was going to start looking for something part-time or just something, you know, to fill some hours while they're at school and then COVID hit. So again, we just can't say how much of God's plan this was that I'm home because we haven't had to find childcare. We haven't had to, I don't work from home. So I can school the three kids when they're home for school and I'm not worrying about my own things. Yeah. That's just been such a blessing. And I can't say that I would have made the same decision if the job that I had left was something that I was truly passionate about. That was my field. That was my calling. I know that job was not my calling. Um, and so in terms of that, it wasn't a difficult decision. It was the financial part. And we have been proven time and time again, my daughter is 10 now, um, for the past decade that God is going to provide us with what we need. And it's been that constant that just reminds me and my husband, we made the right decision. Mm -hmm. Um, this is what's been best for us. And you both have, I think, similar, but different experiences with the being mothers, my experience was I was a stay-at-home mom for about 10 years, and I found it overwhelming. I love my kids, but I found it overwhelming because I'm I'm a curious person, and I always need stuff to do, and constantly doing dishes and laundry was not it. And uh, so after, after about a little over 10 years being a a full-time stay-at-home mom, I thought, oh, why don't I start a business and go out into the work world? So I did. And uh, I started out working nights and evenings in uh, working with formerly homeless youth who had mental health diagnoses as a, uh, as a resident support person, um, helping teach them life skills and get on their own feet and out on their own. It was, I found it very rewarding because I, having spent so many years raising my children with disabilities, I had a, a, you know, I had a soft spot in my heart for anyone who, who had a lot of hurdles in their lives to overcome. Problem was that after I got home from a, a long evening or overnight shift, I still had to parent and do all the cooking and the washing and the cleaning and take kids to the doctors and all that. And I was exhausted. And I was like, how do moms who work outside of the home do this for decades? I lasted a couple of years. And then I tried working um, in the school district during school hours thinking, oh, this will give me, this will be a little bit easier. I'll get out the same time the kids do. We'll be leaving the house at the same time. No, I still didn't get to see my kids. And I was exhausted all the time. So housework still wasn't getting done. And after after a, a rough four, four or five months, like, no, no, no. I think I like the 
working from home better because, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but I do know now that I'm autistic and people are a big stressor for me and having to interact with people in a workplace was quite a challenge. And so I have that experience of being a stay at home mom for a very long time, being a work outside of the home mom for a brief, brief period and finding it extremely overwhelming. And now being somewhere in between working from home a lot, I just got an office. So when I need a break from my family, I can go to the office and work. And when I need an, a break from the office, I can come home and work. So I, I have a kind I have a mixed experience. And for me, we never really got that village part put together to help with 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 all the challenges, in part because of my personality and my husband's personality. We're kind of loners. We don't click well with people very easily, which is why I love having you ladies, because <laughs> I don't know, we seem to share a brain sometimes. And <laughs> And so we, we, we did a lot of our parenting alone. And it was especially challenging because we have autistic kiddos. My oldest two, they were diagnosed when they were two and a half and three years old. They're only 17 months apart. So it was like, it was back-to-back diagnoses for these kiddos. We were basically drop kicked off a cliff trying to figure out how do we care for these little human beings who are who are gonna have to vault over bigger hurdles than their peers because of their disability. And uh, yeah, that was tough. When I was a stay-at-home mom, I, you know, I had friends, acquaintances who were, who were work outside of the home moms and my heart would always break over how sad they were about having to leave their babies and go back to work. But at the same time, I Having five kids and, and being someone who likes quiet and calm, I appreciate having the opportunity to go somewhere and work. And I appreciate having the freedom to choose where I work now. So I, I think another aspect that we want to talk about this stay-at-home mom, work-from-home mom, work outside of the home mom, is how other people around us, particularly our faith community, interacts with moms who are walking different paths in life. I never really felt like I fit anywhere very easily. And so I, I always felt like an outsider. That is, that's part of who I am. I like to sit back and watch. I don't really like to talk a whole lot, except for special topics. You know, you can consider them my special interests. And <laughs> you've all seen me go off on, on a tangent on, on my on a, on a special interest and it, I just like it's a flood of information but you're all in Sam you're just all in yes but there, there are times where I'd rather just sit and watch and not have to talk or interact with people so that made finding a place to fit in rather challenging Sarah what was the experience like for you I know you mentioned that you you, you sort of built a, a little village for yourself to help with your kiddos. What was your experience like as a work outside of the home mom and how other people viewed that? Um, I, I found it very, uh, very tricky to find a place, uh, like a comfortable place in the church. 
Uh, and so my husband and I were married for eight years before we had kids. And our main way of serving in the church and really serving the larger body of Christ was um, being involved in leading Bible studies or gatherings. And a lot of that time it was with graduate students uh, and people without kids. And so we were getting older, but our friends were staying the same age. We just got new ones that were the next set of 23, 24, 25 year olds mm -hmm. uh, as we were pushing 30. And I wondered what would happen. So I didn't really want to be around people with kids very much. I wasn't sure. I think I wasn't sure of myself around children, but also the fact that we were struggling with infertility just made it a hard time to be around other people's kids. And so once we became parents, I thought, I wonder if we'll suddenly have this new group of friends or we'll suddenly fit in with all those people with the kids. I remember so distinctly, there was one particular person at my church and uh, I thought, well, maybe, maybe she and I will be closer friends now because she has a little one and she's working outside the home. And I could count on one hand the number of moms in my church who were working outside the home. And I thought maybe maybe she'll kind of get it. And I started to get to know her and immediately learned that she was more in a situation like Nikki was in. She didn't like her job. She didn't want to be doing it. And it was really hard leaving her little one alone with anyone else. And she, she was really unhappy. And at that time, I I came up with a little schema in my mind. And you guys will like this because you know me. And this is exactly how I think. I made a little two by two box. Either you're at home or you're working outside the home. That's one, one relevant uh, mm -hmm. distinction. And then you're either happy in that situation or you're unhappy in that situation. And what I wasn't finding was anyone who like me was actually working outside the home and was happy to be doing that. And I think it very much relates to the kind of job that I have and the fact that I find energy in what I do. Uh, I do experience that as a calling and it's something that I've been more sure about than most other things in my life that I'm, that I'm in the right place at the right time with the kind of work that I do as a professor. And so, so I really struggled to find uh, someone who is not only in somewhat of the same situation as me, but someone who's content or happy or feels they're, they're where they need to be. And so I found over the years, sometimes my closest friends are stay-at-home moms who are happy to be stay-at-home because they and I have that in common, that we're both thinking that we're doing what makes sense for us. And that's actually more important than having the same life experience. One of the, uh, one of the challenges that I've found as a work outside the home mom is that we need the village, not just necessarily for childcare, but after many years, I uh, very much against my sensibilities, I hired someone to help clean my house, uh, which to me is a very bourgeois thing to do. It seemed really, it just seemed really distasteful. And I remember talking with my mom who had stayed home with us uh, for most of our childhood and then had worked part-time when I was uh, a teenager. And she said, there's no way, Sarah, that I could have kept the house clean if I were working full-time outside the home. Why do you think you could do it? Why do you think that it would work? Uh, and sort of, sort of this uh, reality check, like you're trying to do something that doesn't make any sense. Why would it work? Uh, mm -hmm. And so when she framed it to me that way, I felt in some sense released to try to think a little differently. And my challenge was that I felt that I, I wanted to hire someone who could benefit from having a job of, of helping clean our home. But I also 
wanted it to be a person who I wouldn't feel personally judged by because newsflash, my home is disgusting. I mean, it was just dirty. It's messy and dirty. And uh, what I had learned as a work work outside the home mom was that I didn't prioritize it. And so it wasn't happening. It wasn't that I didn't have any time left because I was cleaning the house. I didn't clean the house. Uh, And so I needed someone who wouldn't judge me. And in the same way for childcare, when we needed someone to take care of uh, Lucas as an infant, I was so thankful that my friend said she was interested in having him at her home with her and her uh, her newborn. And uh, she had a toddler who would be away at preschool part of the time Lucas was there. Because part of why she wanted to do that was she was actually supportive of what I was trying to do. And I was supportive of what she was trying to do. We each saw ourselves acting within our calling Um, Her real emphasis in life is early childhood. She's a doula uh, and she's got uh, just uh, an amazing capacity for babies and small children that I really don't have. And so in a way we were each allowing each other to use our gifts, her freeing me up to go and teach, you know, people in their early twenties at the college down the road. And I'm freeing her up to have the experience that she loves of having another little baby around to try to understand and figure out and enjoy and take care of. And she was really remarkable in that I never felt that she was judging me for working. And I really worried about that, about leaving my child with someone uh, who was stay-at-home mom who would be sort of secretly judging me, thinking, well, this woman needs me to take care of her child because she's too busy to take care of her own child. And, And so having that person really mattered a lot. And in uh, times since we were with Um, with that particular family. As I said, Lucas ended up needing to be cared for at home. We always hired people who didn't have their own kids at the same time that they were caring for, partly because I think I was trying to avoid that feeling of discomfort. In the same way, I wouldn't hire someone to care for my kids if they were concerned about how clean or not clean my house was. So those two things really overlapped. I needed someone to get it. I needed them to, Mm -hmm. to understand that the reason I needed them in my life was because I wasn't going to be able to do all the things and that I was, I was making that decision and knowing that I needed their help and, and they needed the job and that we would each be helping one another and fulfilling what we'd like to do. I, um, I can relate to that feeling of feeling judged and, and not wanting to ask for help for things with watching the kids or cleaning the house, because I come from a, a, a traditional uh, West Indian Caribbean culture background and you didn't let strangers see your house unless it was crystal clean, sparkling. So there was no inviting anyone in to help you clean your house. You did that all by yourself. There was no letting anyone who wasn't a close relative watching your kids. So there was no babysitting kind of thing. We were here in Syracuse, away from my family group, my family unit, My husband was also far away from his family group and family unit. I have a completely different culture, (laughs) a New England wasp type culture. And so here are the two of us very much alone. And I had been taught to be self-sufficient, to do it all myself, to do everything. My, in my family, the women in my family, they were the ones that went out and cleaned other people's houses and watched other people's kids. And also came home and watched their own kids and cleaned their own homes and did all the cooking. And I thought, oh, I have to do that too. It didn't work. (laughs) It did not work at all. 
And it took me a very long time to get used to accepting help. I'm oh, I'm completely over it now, the, the feeling that I need to not accept help and do it all myself. Yeah, I'm mostly over that. But yeah, you want to hang out with my kids? Take them away for the whole day. No, you don't have to come. Oh, you want to stay overnight? Okay, cool. <laughs> See you later, kids. Well, what's so interesting is that the biblical tradition is the idea of it takes a village. Mm, yes. And yeah. now just hearkening back to the name, that seems radical now. Yes. That, you know, I have friends who are like family who, when we've been in trouble or something has happened, they've just come over and said, give us car seats. We're taking your kids. And people's minds were blown that we have friends that would do that. <laughs> and yeah, that's how it should be. I think. Mm-hmm. So Nikki, what was your experience like? as a, a work from home mom who really wanted to be a stay at home, a, a work outside of the home mom who really wanted to be a stay at home mom who ultimately made the choice to be a stay at home mom. What was your experience like with, with, your, with your village? I know you just said that you have close family friends that are like family who show up without needing to be told to rescue you. <laughs> what else was your, in your experience? Well, I... Did and didn't have a hard time finding a place, I would say, in the church. I didn't because I was in a wave at our church of babies. So there are waves of babies being born through our church. And we, this is the only church we've ever been to is the one we currently attend. And so Harper, my oldest, was in the first wave of babies. So I got plugged in with a group of wonderful women who were, you know, in that same wave. What was different is that I'm probably five to 10 years younger than them all because we started having children so young. So that always, that even still, I'm 35 now, still kind of feels weird sometimes. Very rarely does anyone make me feel that, but especially back then in my early to mid twenties, feeling like the women who I identified as peers were trying to kind of take me under their wing when I didn't really want it (laughs) or ask for it. Um, So in the time since then, I have found my people. I mean, we, um, there's a a family at church that she and I just kept trading off kids and even genders. My first was a girl. And then as soon as mine was born, she was pregnant with her first boy and we've just traded off and Um, I would say we have a friendship now that's beyond just our kids. It probably started because we were like, Hey, we're both home. Let's get the kids together. Let's talk to adults. Mm -hmm. And now it's the kids are old enough. Can we go get coffee? (laughs) (laughs) Not bring the kids. (laughs) Yeah. So that's, that's been a weird, I guess, thing in, in kind of how I found my people within the church. The other kind of tricky thing for me is I have a lot of different ideas perhaps than a lot of very traditional um, Christians do. And so I've been involved in um, Christian Bible studies, the women, uh, women's VBS, or I can't remember what it is. (laughs) And, you know, and then sometimes my mouth works faster than my brain and I'll say something and then go, Oh no, I've just lost a friend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and that's been a challenge for me throughout my walk, um, in Christianity is 
you know, when I first started attending church, I asked one of our pastors if I had to switch political parties in order to be a Christian. And um, they thankfully said no, but (laughs) um, that's, you know, that's always been something, a struggle with outside of even my own role as a mother. So I have always felt a little separate um, from the quote, typical stay at home moms. Oh, the, and, and also a lot of my friends in the church were raised in the church. My husband and I were baptized as adults. I was actually pregnant with my first when we were baptized. So, um, yeah, we, I think we brought in different ideas, different values than perhaps some who were raised in the church. And it's, it's, I think it's easy for some women who are a little bit older and have been in the church longer to feel like someone like me just needs to be guided. And I, I think we all do to an extent, but I don't think I do in that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I will say that I've seen the church not offer as many opportunities, I should say for um, mothers and parents who work either from the home or outside of the home as many as I have, because there's stuff that you can do during the day. I can take my kids to a Bible study at 9am childcare within those things is really focused on. So I attended a Bible study that uh, the women rotated who did childcare for that week. So there were childcare was never a question. You just bring them there. There's not that many opportunities, you know, in the evening even for, um, yeah, for Bible studies or things like that at the church. Um, so I will say I'm very, I count that as one of the the good things in my decision to be a stay at home mother is there are opportunities during the day that I can take advantage of that, um, you know, someone working isn't offered those same opportunities. I had the experience um, after I moved to Syracuse for college and then never left of oftentimes pretty much every, almost everywhere I went being the only non-white person in the room. I went to a lot of women's Bible studies where I was the only non-white person in the room. And that was interesting. Uh, it's 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 still the case that a lot of places I go, I, I, I'm still the non-white person in the room. But I've gotten used to it. And I have you two who are, you're not brown, but still we, <laughs> there a lot of, a lot of the things, there are a lot of other ways that we connect and relate to each other. So it's like, yeah, okay, I can live with that. And we're starting to rub off on each other. (laughs) Um, You know, even using American Black vernacular correctly, that was a hoot. I loved that. You know, that was part of me feeling like an outsider. I was the the one brown person in the room. For a very long time, I was very shy about speaking up. But, oh, we're talking about the Bible. (laughs) I know that that's one of my special interests. And so I did, I did a lot more speaking up and it was, uh, it was, it was interesting. Everyone was nice, but it was still weird being the only, the only non-white person in a room. And that's, that's something that just irritates me, (laughs) irritates me still. I think my experiences as, as a mother were affected by the, the difference the two different cultures that I was interacting with. So at church, all of the moms, they were breastfeeding their babies. So I'm like, oh, okay. You know, they, they were expert at it. They could like 
breastfeed a baby with one with one arm and wrangle like four kids with the other arm while carrying on a conversation. I'm like, yeah, that's oh, this, is, <laughs> this is possible. When I went back to visit my parents and my other family, their their response was, oh no, you have to give that baby a bottle. That baby is starving. Meanwhile, I have these big chonker babies who are tearing apart their house. <laughs> Um, I don't think the children are starving. So that was, that was my experience. And in, in my culture of origin, all the women worked outside of the home. There was no, there was no conflict. There was no debate. You had your baby, you stayed home for however long you were allowed to. And then you dropped the baby off with a close family friend and you went back to work. That I think is is a universal part of the black experience, wherein the women always work, are always in charge of the housekeeping and the childcare. And my family did not understand why aren't you working? Because I'm working as a mother, mom. But you know, you're smart, you can go teach if you want to. No, I, I want to teach my kids and stay at home. And as they got older, it's like, okay, I need to get out of the house. I need to, I need someone else to talk to, to interact with. I need something to do with this, with this brain of mine. And so I was working outside the house and that, then they were like, oh, okay, this is normal. We know what this is. So that was, that was my experience wherein I had one culture wherein being a stay-at-home mom, breastfeeding, cloth diapers, all of that was totally normal and nobody blinked an eye. And then you know, my family's culture where they're like, why aren't you working? What are you doing? And it didn't help that my house was always a mess because you're supposed to work outside the home and work inside the home too. I got a lot of interesting commentary over the years about parenting. And in the church, I think the biggest challenge for me was that I was often the only non-white person in the room and I was often the, the brainiac who, who had something to say about every single topic <laughs> because, you know, what are you going to do when you're home all day? Well, I read books. So I want to I touch on the, the, the faith community in the church. What do you think are some of the ways that the church can make it easier for moms, whether they're stay at home, work outside of the home, work from the home, now most of us are work from home because COVID is a thing. What do you think the church can do to help make our experiences as mothers, I don't want to say easier, but make it make us feel more supported in our choices as mothers? You know, one thing I find is our church is great at meal training. So when a new baby is born, when there's somebody is sick, when there's a death, we are great at taking care of one another with food. Um, I just had a friend who had their third baby and she said, when I dropped off, uh, some food to them, she said, man, that meal train gets smaller and smaller with each child. That first baby, you get meals constantly. The second one, not so much, but that third one, you get four or five in about a month. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know a way to kind of rally people to care for each other even when it's not as exciting as that first baby is super exciting. And I don't know how to do that, but that is a way, you know, the day-to-day life things matter, I guess, you know, having a third baby is, is just as big of an adjustment, if not more than having the first. 
And um, I think people are ready to celebrate the new things or if there's a big tragedy, they're ready to mourn with you. But if a second tragedy happens or if, you know, more exciting things happened, it's not as, I guess, as big of a deal as that first time. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that would look like. I don't know how you tell a group of people, you're not as excited this time. <laughs> be happier, be more help this time, like, like you were the first time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, you know, the way we always phrase, and I just did a meal turn, so I did the same thing. Help this family navigate going from, for example, a family of four to five. And it's so overlooked that that is such a big deal that it truly is, you know, each new member of a family is a monumental step in that family. Yeah. We should just, we should be as invested with, you know, every change that we can, um, that we can help everybody kind of navigate changes. And this is, I don't think this is just for mothers. I think it's for families. I think it's for, you know, a college student just starting out. If they say I am lost and I need help plugging in that they're cared for. It's, you know, we live in capitalist individualism society and it's hard to ask for help and it's hard to get out of your own stuff and realize that other people's need other people's other people <laughs> need the help even in the littlest ways. And I, and I'm by no means preaching um, because I'm just as guilty of it. Um, there was another meal train recently that I was just like, I don't want to drive that far. <laughs> so I didn't bring a meal. Um, so this is to me too. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think just supporting these families in the day-to-day -day more and our, our, our church does have, you know, our missional communities and our formation groups. And I think they're very reliant on those groups to be self-sufficient. Yeah. So the other thing is I'm very intentional though. And I, my gosh, for the love intentional about if there is something big happening, I'm in contact with one of our pastors. And so something I tend to get caught up in is, well, shouldn't our pastors be reaching out to us? And what would they, what their entire lives would be texting every member of church. So <laughs> there has to be some element of responsibility on somebody going through something to be making that contact. And once I do, I get checked in with by the church leadership. So it's, it's, Again, kind of that thing of being able to ask for help or just ask for prayers. I've texted our pastors and just said, Hey, can you, if you've got a chance, please pray about this. And I'm sorry if I'm a bother, but I'll pray for you back. No, <laughs> <laughs> not how it works. <laughs> right. <laughs> but just even saying, you don't have to even text me back. Like just me putting it out there. And I trust that you're going to say a quick prayer. You'll probably put your phone down and do it right now. I have a couple of things, and one of them really follows on what Nikki was talking about. So I, I would frame it as um, that uh, church assistance seems to be event-based and not chronic-based. Yeah. So like something happens, some discrete event occurs, and then we do something about it, and we expect that commitment to be temporary in the sense that there will be a meal train for a certain number of weeks, and then we will be done with that meal train. What I found personally challenging is um, when someone has an ongoing need, I don't think our churches necessarily know how to create a, a web of support that is always there uh, because it's much harder. Um, we were part of a church where there was someone with a, a young adult with a, a terrible 
um, chronic illness that struck and they didn't have any improvement. There wasn't, they didn't get better. It was an ongoing, very serious health struggle. And one of the uh, features of it was a very limited diet of what the person could eat. Uh, and so there was a way to sign up to bring meals, but there was also a, a very long and complicated list of sort of these are things that definitely can't be in the meals. These are things, these are the kinds of things this person really needs for nutrition. Um, and so I think a lot of people didn't necessarily want to invest in that. It seemed sort of hard and complicated. And of course, the people it was most hard and complicated for were the people suffering through this experience. And uh, I found over the course of time, um, as we would check in, they couldn't participate in missional communities anymore or the equivalent. They couldn't really attend church a lot of the time. Um, one person was laid up completely. And so, so we would be in touch with them and... Uh, sometimes I would just bring a bag of groceries that included items from their list. I don't know what goes together or what meal you're going to make out of this, but at least you have stuff in the house that's, that you can eat. And I remember distinctly getting a thank you note after doing that one time. And I went and told my pastor, I said, it should not be the case that this person is so, so thankful for this bag of groceries that they wrote me a note with an itemized list of all the things that I gave them as if it wasn't happening every week. Is there no one else bringing them food? Like what is going on? This should just be part of our church's life taking care of this family. Like th this shouldn't be a thing where they're constantly in a position of like hoping someone might help them out and being utterly blown away by our generosity of buying them a bag of groceries. This should be something that the church does quietly and that that family should be able to expect uh, because we're family. The other thing I want to note is I think this fits in a little bit with, um, with disability in the sense that uh, some of our situations involve ongoing needs of our kids. There may be, for instance, uh, a childcare need that is ongoing. It would really be good for a particular family if someone could spend a couple of hours with one or two of their kids on a weekly basis indefinitely. And, and that it's not something that's going to expecting to change or go away. Uh, it's something that's just going to be part of life, uh, a part of integrating our community uh, around people of a variety of uh, disability, of chronic illness, of anything where a community really can benefit um, one another to serve and just treat it as family, not as something uh, like a special event that needs care. I had one other thought on this, um, which is a, a, a sort of a going in a different direction, but um, I was trying to think of concrete things, Sam, like you said, that the church could do. One thing, uh, if we're thinking about moms who might work outside the home or not work outside the home, is um, making sure there are fellowship opportunities for moms who work outside the home. Like Nikki said, things are often scheduled in such a way as to essentially normalize stay-at-home motherhood and non-normalize work out outside the home motherhood. But another piece of that is actually just trying to recognize that the ways that women then can contribute to the church might be different depending on what role they're playing personally in the work world. Uh, and so a lot of opportunities for women in church seem to be volunteer opportunities that would use time. And I don't feel that it's communicated as clearly as it could be that all of those volunteer opportunities often come with financial expenses. So let's say it's vacation Bible school. We need people to teach vacation Bible school in the middle of the day for a week in the summer, right? And so a working mom 
is not likely to be able to do that. Uh, but if it were really clear, if you can't volunteer your time, we would love if you can buy these things. So I think Missio did a great job of this. At one point, there were a bunch of index cards we could pick up. That was probably Nikki Park behind that, was it? That was not, but I no. fully backed that. <laughs> Hopefully when the world opens up again and we can get back to church, we will keep doing similar things because yeah. that was the best. <laughs> it was really fantastic because it gave the other people in the congregation a way to help. Um, and, and we I found... Think we found that people did not want to give us cash. They didn't want to say whatever, here's what you need. They wanted to buy things. That is so and interesting. So was taking the index card and saying, okay, they need a dozen glue sticks. I will come back next week with a dozen glue sticks rather than the $5 for us to buy the dozen glue sticks. <laughs> I'm an economist and I, I treasure efficiency. So I'd give you the $5, but I do, I think you're <laughs> right. I think most people would rather um, go and buy the stuff. Um, and there's, there is some, there's something about just the inclusivity of that kind of an ask that says it's volunteer hours are not the only thing that will be helpful. There are other things that might be helpful. And a, a mom who works outside the home is more likely to be able to spare $10 than a mom who's not working outside the home. And a mom not working outside the home is more likely able to spare an hour or two. Um, and, and so just recognizing, wow, this this variety of women's choices actually gives us exactly that diversity of elements that we need to pull something off. We need money and we need time. And different families, different mothers can contribute differently to that uh, without it needing to feel like there's really the right way to contribute is to volunteer. And then the sort of lesser way or the sort of, um, sort of I don't want to say exactly cheaper way, but the sort of less spiritual way is to, to be giving cash. It just seems a little crass, I guess, just giving cash. You know, the, the real work is done by the people who are teaching the children about Jesus. But I, I've really worked over the years to convince myself, maybe this is for my own self-preservation, to say, no, it's actually really important for me to do the work I do so that I contribute money towards the glue sticks and the workbooks and the crayons mm -hmm. and yes. uh, someone someone needs to do that and I can be that person and mm -hmm. I'm not going to be seen in the same way for doing that because no one will see me do it um, right. it's not something for which I'm going to be noticed or recognized but at the same time I can feel that I've really contributed and that not just contributed but that the work I do as a work outside the home mom generates that money that can help the church. And so part of what I'm doing by working outside the home is making that financial commitment to the church that I wouldn't otherwise be able to make. Yeah, you make a great point, Sarah, in that it's important to create different avenues for people to serve. Not everybody has time to be face-to-face. -face. Not everybody has the, the, the capacity, the temperament for interacting with people a lot. Speaking about myself, <laughs> um, interacting with a lot of people tires me out. So I'm probably not going to volunteer to do anything like that. If there's something that I can do in a quiet room, I'll volunteer to do that. <laughs> or if there's something that I can make the kids do, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll volunteer my children's labor. <laughs> so I do it to them all the time. <laughs> my oldest is like, mom, you have to stop volunteering me for things. I'm like, oh, you're an adult now. I guess I should. 
Sorry. <laughs> but it's, it's important to think creatively about the different roles that women play. Well, think carefully about the different roles that women play in their personal lives and what that means for the roles that they can play in, in, in the church's life. Because we, we are not all the same. We have different strengths. We have different needs. We have different family commitments, different work commitments. And that's all gonna come into play in what we have to offer to the life of the church. Any last comments? Well, I think we also have different interpersonal relationships. Um, yes, you know, I have dear friends who I was on their list when they had their baby to come over and stay overnight and be with their, um, with their kids while they had the baby. And it's because we have such a strong relationship that somebody else from the church might not be able to fill that role. So I think in the service that we, we consider it's, it's important to be thoughtful about the type of service that's going to benefit both the giver and the recipient. Um, it wouldn't have been helpful for me to say, yeah, drop your kids, drop your kids off for a couple hours while you're in labor. No, they needed someone at their house who knows their kids, who knows their life to yeah. run the show for that 36 hours. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, I think the personal element of the service is just as important as the service itself. I recognize my gifting is in the kids ministry and some days I don't want to be there, but I'm going to do better in there than I am, you know, greeting people at the front door, mm-hmm. which is awful. <laughs> God bless people who could do that. Um, and I recognize that that gifting and that role is important in the functionality of church in that morning, but it's also a way to cultivate relationships with the people who might need that help that I can, you know, start to get to know. So using, using your service in a way that can help you really use your service for somebody. Yeah. I'm, I'm more likely to drop everything for a close friend than not. And that's probably not okay, but (laughs) yeah, I think recognizing the needs of everybody person to person, family to family and using your volunteerism or your role in church to kind of help you decipher and determine how you can help each family, each individual, whoever needs what, yeah, you know, I, it would be, I would it would be weird if I showed up, it would be weird if I showed up at someone's house I've met twice at church and been like, I'm here to take care of your kids. <laughs> <laughs> Although Sam said she would welcome that from anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's true. <laughs> This, um, the note of the interpersonal relationships even applies to money. So, yeah. uh, so if someone, you know, well, suddenly becomes into a financial need, a random person isn't going to know that only their close friends might be aware of what's going on. And, and so in the same way that you would know who might need you to volunteer, to, um, go take care of their kids while they're having a baby. I know if something happens that ends up being costly for someone, their car breaks down, um, they need to travel for a sick family member or a funeral. If I know people and their lives, then I have an idea of what they might need and I can offer rather than waiting to be asked. Yeah. Because uh, it's very hard for people to ask for things. 
it seems, as far as I can tell, particularly hard for people to ask for money. Yes, um, I can say yes. from experience, very much so. Yeah, yes, uh, there's sort of so. like you asking people to bring you meals is very like socially acceptable, and I think even you know there are other ways in which, uh, not that it isn't hard, it still is hard to ask for help, but there are these sort of ways that the church traditionally offers help. But when it comes to money, uh, it's very, in my experience, very unusual that a friend says, can you help us financially with X, Y, or Z? But it happens that we help people because we're aware of their need and we're able to say, can we help? And, and at that point that gives them the freedom to sort of tell us what their needs might be. So I, I wanna thank you both for, for going along with my crazy idea to start a podcast. <laughs> and Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for spending your spending your time thinking about this and having this conversation. And I want to thank our listeners for listening to the Radical Traditional Feminist podcast. If you have comments or questions for us, please visit www.samanthajcpierce.com. We'd love to hear from you.